I'm already breaking the rules here. Amen. <laughs> Off to a good start. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to now go to your word, learn from you, Lord. I pray that um, by your grace, mercy, and your power, by your spirit, Lord, you would in a real way move me out of the way so that Jesus can be clearly seen. Lord, all our hope, all our, all our joy, um, all our love is rooted in him. Uh, we can do nothing apart from him. And so we are completely dependent on you right now. Lord, do it even now. Do it for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Let all of God's people say amen. amen. Let's look at God's word quickly. From 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, this is, this, is, uh, this is God's word. This is God's word. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. One sweltering July night in AD 64, a fire broke out in the merchant district of the city of Rome. The fire spread uncontrollably, burning for six days and seven nights, killing hundreds, leaving thousands homeless, and eventually consuming nearly three quarters of the city. However, the blaze mysteriously left the Emperor Nero's estates and land holdings unscathed. Soon, rumors began swirling that the emperor himself may have been involved with the fire, that perhaps he had set these fires in order to make way for a new palace. And in order to deflect blame from himself and in order to deflect these accusations, Nero looked for a political scapegoat. And he decided to blame the fire on an obscure, relatively small religious sect with few political connections in the empire known as Christians. So, as a, diver as a diversionary tactic, Nero ordered the wide-scale harassment, the arrest, the brutal torture, and public executions of Christians throughout Rome. It was at this time that the Apostle Peter was in Rome, and he knew it was only a matter of time before the violence that began in Rome would reach other believers scattered throughout the empire. So Peter put pen to paper and with the help of a trusted friend named Sylvanus, he began secretly circulating this letter throughout Christians throughout the, among Christians throughout the empire. Believers had already known Jesus as the mighty friend of sinners. But as they read this letter, they began to know him as the mighty friend of sufferers who personally understands our suffering because he took it upon himself. And he came to eradicate suffering and to show us to reveal a way to engage our suffering in such a way that we point to the kingdom. And beloved, you don't have to be a person that is socially oppressed to understand suffering. You only got to keep living. You lived any period of time. You, you know that that, that suffering is a part of this journey on this side of glory. And, and suffering, suffering really doesn't care about your bank account. 
It doesn't care about your calendar. Suffering has a way of inserting itself in our lives. And so, and so we all need a word about how can I engage this situation in such a way that points to Jesus? How can I engage these tears in such a way that points to Jesus? How can I, how can I know that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has not left me to my own devices when it hurts the most, but actually he's right there with me in my suffering situation. Well, 1 Peter 2 and 21 says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. As Peter searched for a word to describe Jesus's example, for suffering people, he uses the word hupogramon. Repeat after me, hupogramon. All right, y'all know some Greek now. Amen. You have been equipped. If you don't, that's right. You're by now. You are bilingual. That's right. You know, you know, Koine Greek. Amen. Hupogramon. Hupogramon means a writing copy. Uh, it literally means a, a, a written copy that goes beneath. And this was the kind of writing tablet that was placed beneath the hands of ancient grammar students. Anybody here who has small children has, and has had any experience teaching them how to form letters and to write knows the dot to dot. And maybe you have, maybe you have experienced personally when you were a child using the dot to dot. And, and, and the hoopogramon was a, like a dot, it was an ancient dot to dot that taught children taught young grammarians how to form patterns and letters that they otherwise would not know how to form. And, and, and what Peter is saying is that that is, what, that is what Jesus came to provide for us through his life and through his cross. At the cross, Christ revealed to us a pattern for how to do something that we otherwise would not know how to do. What? to engage suffering to the glory of God. Peter undoubtedly remembered the way he and the other apostles reacted when oppression and injustice and suffering came their way at Gethsemane. They fell apart. They lost it. Peter did what came very naturally to many of us. When violence came his way, he met violence with retaliatory violence, and he drew his sword. And he cut off someone's ear. The other apostles took the other natural response to injustice. One response to injustice naturally is to respond with injustice ourselves or respond with violence ourselves. If they hit me, I'm going to hit them back. If they dominate me, I'm going to dominate back. If they curse me, I'm going to curse back. That's the natural response. We often feel like that's the right response. The other apostles took the other natural response to injustice and oppression. They simply ran away. They acquiesced. Let's just go along to get along. We don't have to speak up. Let's just get out of here as fast as we can, and maybe we can continue to just keep our head down, and the Roman Empire won't notice us. But Peter remembered that Jesus did not go the way of violent retaliation. He did not go the way of passive acquiescence. He actually revealed a third way of a conspicuous, direct response that was direct but also nonviolent. Isaiah had foretold that the Messiah would be precisely distinguished by his nonviolence, by his love. He committed no sin. 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did something different. He didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did something unlike us. He did not threaten. Rather than respond with violence or passivity, Jesus responded to oppression and injustice with nonviolent direct action. Actively loving, actively forgiving, and actively making a public spectacle of injustice so that it could be seen for what it is and dealt with. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was not overcome with evil, but he overcame evil with good. You know, MLK, and if you don't hear me say anything else about the life of MLK, I want you to hear this. MLK picked up this biblical revelation of Jesus's response to injustice and suffering he took it up and he applied it to the black social situation in America. And so what you see when you, when you, when you look around and you look at the, at, at the history books and you, and, you, and you look at those black and white films of, of people meeting uh, violent attack dogs and meeting uh, angry mobs and meeting people uh, at, at lunch tables and lunch counters that, that, that were putting out cigarettes on them and you see these people meeting that hatred with love, it's not just a clever social tactic. It's not just a, 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 a convenient, pragmatic way to kind of get our political way. This was actually a, a deep public application of a theology of the cross. This is Jesus' way gone public. This is, this is the, the revelation of the good news of Jesus Christ applied to a social situation of a people. And so as we look at that stuff, I don't want you to just think, oh, yeah, you know that king, that was a wonderful social situation, and he's a kind of social icon. No, 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 no. That's the church at work. That's Christ at work. That's God's way at work. And we should know that. You see, people before vicious police dogs and unforgiving fire hoses and refusing to revile in return, we are seeing far more than a clever social tactic. We're seeing a public application of a deep theology of the cross. King's view was what he called a redemptive suffering. He often said, unearned suffering is redemptive. In other words, it's not that suffering itself is a good. Actually, suffering is a bad thing. Suffering is something that we should all want to eradicate, and it's something that God wants to eradicate. But given the reality of suffering in our world, it can be engaged in a virtuous way. God has not left us without resources or recourse in a suffering situation. There are some people that would look at the teaching of redemptive suffering and they would just kind of say, well, you know, that means that folks shouldn't complain about their suffering. Well, you know, that means that God has willed it and, you know, it'll end when it ends, when Jesus comes back one day. And that's not what this means at all. It means that in the face of suffering, we are not left without agency. God gives us a calling to actually expose it and to engage it in a way that would bring light to it and hopefully end it. King's views on redemptive suffering came from 250 years of theological reflection from African Americans, 
often without the benefit of formal theological training, enslaved and oppressed black believers wrestled with life's deepest contradictions and yet found reasons for hope. Their answers took the form of prayers and sermons and spirituals and humor and activism and offer one of the most important theological legacies of the American church. Beneath the sweltering sun of southern cotton fields, they shouldered on with the hope that the omnipotent God could make a way out of no way. And that because of Christ, God would somehow bring good out of the evils inflicted on them. That God was still at work, that God was still present, that God was still with them. And listen, beloved, it takes some great faith to believe that God is present with you in the fields of a southern plantation. It takes some great faith to believe that God is still active and, and at work and, and, and holds out hope when your daddy and your granddaddy and your great-granddaddy and your great-great-granddaddy were all enslaved. That's great faith. And that's the, listen, that is the kind of faith that we need, all of us, not just black folk, but all of us. Because we cannot continue to think that God is only at work when the government is on our side. Amen, somebody. We can't continue to think that God is only at work when we have the right amount of Supreme Court justices that we want in place. Amen. We can't continue to think that God is only at work when we have the particular politician in place that's pushing the particular legislation that we happen to think uh, that, that, that's good for us. We've got to understand that God is still at work even when we find ourselves on the social bottom. That God is still at work even when persecution comes. That God is still at work even when things don't look to be turning out the way we want them to. That's what the cross shows us. That there's no situation that you could ever face where God is not present and active with you. And so African-Americans looked around and they sang songs like, I'm so glad trouble don't last always. Some songs like, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes songs like, I've been buked and I've been scorned. And, 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 and you ain't never had trouble until you've been buked. Until you've been scorned. Until folks have talked about you, lied about you, hated you for no reason, mischaracterized you, slandered your name in the public. I've been buked and I've been scorned. And, and these are the songs that dance on the edge of despair, but, but, but they rejoice in hopeful triumph because they have the example of Jesus. And nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Jesus understands. If, you find, if you've ever found yourself lonely, Jesus understands. If you ever find yourself mischaracterized or misunderstood, Jesus understands. If you ever find yourself with, with, some, with some family trouble, Jesus understands. If you ever find yourself uh, uh, with some trouble on the job, Jesus understands. If you ever, no matter what you're going through, you ever find yourself just in, a, just in a situation where you don't know what the future holds, Jesus understands. He gets that. He knows by way of experience. And that's the kind of Jesus that we need, a Jesus that is a friend to sufferers. And that's the kind of Jesus that we have got to preach. That's the kind of Jesus that we've got to share. Because the world is, listen, there are, there are many people leaving the church. 
Just, let's just talk, let's just be real today. There are a whole lot of folks that are angry and, and leaving, and we say, why are they leaving? Why are they walking away? It's not because they don't believe Jesus is a friend of sinners, but they wonder whether Jesus is a friend of sufferers. They wonder whether Jesus sees the suffering around us. And sometimes we're not a good ambassador of the Savior of sufferers because oftentimes we give them the sense that Jesus doesn't really care about things like that. You remember uh, perhaps Dr. King's famous letter from a Birmingham jail in which he talked about how many churches mouthed pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. That, 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 that they preached a strange gospel that says that issues like racial injustice were social issues with which the gospel had no real concern. People who believe that Jesus is a friend of sinners but not the friend of sufferers. And, 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 and what Peter is correcting and I think what many within the black church tradition is correcting and what Dr. King's legacy is correcting is that idea that we have to understand Jesus is indeed the friend of sufferers. I want us to take away, I want, I want us to give us two takeaways today, two quick takeaways um, from King's redemptive suffering legacy. One is we must take social suffering seriously enough to get involved, okay? So this sermon does have an application section, amen. <laughs> Something for you to do. You need to get involved, okay? You need to look around and get involved. Look at what, the, look at, look at what Peter says. Peter says, he suffered for you. That means that God in Christ got involved. God in Christ did not simply sit back and fold his arms and say, you know, that's real bad over there. I just feel sorry for those people. Let's, let's cry tears for those people and let's go on about our business. That's not what the Lord did. God in Christ came among us and took suffering seriously enough to personally get involved and take the burden on himself and not just to cry tears for us, but to cry tears with us. To cry tears with us. Do you know the, the difference between sympathy and empathy? Right? Sympathy kind of stands up and looks down at a person in a ditch and says, man, sucks to be you. Ah, yeah, it's bad down there. I mean, you know, those folks over in Bordeaux, man, oh, it's a sad situation. Sucks to be them. Lost their, 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 their kind of uh, cultural uh, uh, legacy. They lost their homes. They've lost political agency in their own neighborhoods. It just sucks to be them. That's sympathy. But God calls us beyond sympathy to empathy. You know what empathy is? Empathy is when you take yourself off your high horse and you actually crawl down into the ditch with a person. And you says, I won't just look down on you and feel sorry for you, but I will come alongside you and cry with you and do what I can to get you out of this ditch. And that is what God in Christ has done for us. The only reason we saved today is because God came and got us out of the ditch. Amen. That's my testimony, that God got me out of the ditch. He came down and got me out of the ditch, a ditch that I could not get myself out of. And so the Lord calls us to get involved, to get involved, 
as Romans 12, 15 says, to weep with those who weep. This precludes, beloved, dismissing, downplaying, or denying suffering, and especially the sufferings of other Christians. And this is really important, y'all, because partisan political factions and political polarization thrives on you dismissing, downplaying, and denying sufferings. Don't pay attention to that. Those aren't the real victims. The real victims are over here. Don't pay attention to this. Those aren't the real victims. The real victims are over there. And, and, and in our political discourse today, you have to choose your victims. You really do. You really do. You, you can't care about, listen, you can't care about the unborn and inner city mothers that have lost their children to gun violence. You got to choose one or the other. And the Lord says, I love them all. The Lord says, you must weep with all of them. You must take their burdens on yourself. And you have got to be conspicuously known for not denying the sufferings of real victims. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says. Not because you are such a great apologist, not because you are the smartest person in the room, not because you've got a PhD in systematic theology, but if you have love for one another. And so according to Jesus himself, love is at the center of the gospel, at the center of the Christian ethic. Whatever our social ethic, whatever our politics, if we be Christians, we must answer to the high standard of self-giving love. We must empathize with others. It was John Calvin, and I don't often quote Calvin, but I'm going to quote him right here. He summarizes this in this way. He said this. He said, let him who would reach the goal of wisdom as to the right way of living make proficiency in love. Calvin is saying, if you're going to read my Christian institutes or the, or, or the institutes of the Christian religion, if you're going to read my theology, if you're going to read my writings, if you're going to, if you're going to do anything about that, that reflects my theology, you must, make a, you must be more skillful at loving people. Genuine Christians are called and empowered to have a conspicuous reputation for love, love for one another and love for our neighbors. And it's amazing to me that when Jesus comes back and he separates the sheep from the goats, he is not going to be asking us about what hymnal we sang out of. He is not going to ask us about what denomination we were a part of. He said, well, were you AME? Were you UME? Was it PCA? Was it PCUSA? No, 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 no. Jesus is going to test our faith in him by the love test. The, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I, was, when I was in prison, you came to visit me. When I did not have clothes, you, 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 you clothed me. It was the love test. And here's the thing about, here's the thing about, about, about a good test. I always liked the, the teachers that would say, now this is what's going to be on the test. I'm not trying to trick y'all. This is, this is, this is, is, is coming at a day and an hour that you don't know, but, but it's not a pop quiz in the sense that you don't know what's going to be on the test. Jesus said, this is what's on the test. It's a love test. And it doesn't mean that you must not have faith. You ought to have faith, but what counts is faith expressing itself as love. And so if we know what's going to be on the love test, beloved, we ought to make a practice of actually walking that out. Making sure we find folks who are in need and suffering and making sure we attend to those things as an expression 
of, of, of faith and love. And here's the last thing, beloved. We must take social, social suffering serious enough to get involved, and we must take hope seriously enough to stay involved. Take hope seriously enough to stay involved. The scriptures say that Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That means continued is in the imperfect tense, which means Christ didn't just entrust himself one time. You know, Christ was standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate was an unjust judge. But it says that essentially Christ looked past Pontius Pilate and continued entrusting himself to the real judge, God. And remember what, what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate? He said, hey, hey, look, look at man. I, I mean, I'm just, just, this is the Edmondson Standard Version. This is ESV. Oh, look here, man. I, I, I've seen a lot of people in your situation, and, and, and uh, you know, I've seen them beg for their lives. And, and he's like, yeah, and, and, and there's something weird about Jesus. You know, he's like, don't you know that I got the power to, to, to kill you or to let you go free? And Jesus responded, you would not have any power over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. Jesus understood who the real judge was. He was understood who, who had real juice in the situation. And he continued over and over again entrusting himself to the real judge. He committed to continue to have hope. And, and, and MLK was a person that as he engaged uh, social situations, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He understood that, yeah, I know racism is, is rearing its ugly head right now, but racism won't have the final say because God is the just judge. I know xenophobia has, 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 has really got its thing going on right now, but, I, but, but, but at the end of the day, God is still the just judge. And I know hatred, it seems to be pervading the land and polarization and separation and division and stratification seems to, seems to have the, uh, it, it, it's got, it seems to be winning right now. But ultimately, at the end of the day, ah, unity and love and peace and flourishing and justice will prevail in the end because God is the just judge. I remember watching the 2002 Winter Olympics. And some of you all may not remember the 2002 Winter Olympics, you know, 21 years ago. Or, um, and, uh, and at that Winter Olympics, there was a man named Stephen Bradbury of Australia who won perhaps the most unexpected gold medal in Winter Olympics history. He, he was trailing behind Apollo Anton Ono and other favorites for nearly the entire race. This man was not second, he was not third, he was not fourth, he was way behind everybody. And, and, and victory seemed all but impossible for Stephen Bradbury. I mean, they were just, I mean, he might, it's one of the guys just like, babe, look man, you might as well just pack up your skate, you might as well just skate on off the course, because you are way behind. But it, something weird happened. With only one turn remaining, somehow, all four of the leaders that were way ahead of Stephen Bradbury suddenly got tripped up in each other's skates. And out of nowhere, they slammed into a wall in a pile, and Stephen Bradbury, who nobody expected to ever win, cruised on to victory, glory, hallelujah, 
not by being the fastest, but by being the last one standing in the end. And I know that, that, that the love and the justice and the righteousness of God are like that. I know hatred and injustice and oppression have gotten out to a fast start. And, and we look out in our world and it seems like that they are way out ahead of the church, way out ahead of goodness, way out ahead, uh, ahead of righteousness. They seem so overwhelming. Uh, uh, they seem so, 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 so pervasive. And we look at the darkness of mass incarceration and unemployment and underemployment and racial disparities in housing and education and health care. But let me tell you something, because of the love of God, because of the justice of God, because of he who judges justly, some kind of way in the grace of God and in the providence of God, all of those things are going to get caught up in each other's skates. And look at here, uh, we look back at the redemptive history of God's people and we say, did you know it looked like Egypt was way out ahead but somehow along the way in the providence of God. God raised up his people and it was the God's people who ended up standing in the end. Uh, we look back at the history of Assyria and that was another mighty empire and they looked like they would last forever but look here God allowed his people to be standing in the end. We look at Babylon and Babylon had a whole lot of resources. Babylon had one of the great wonders of the world and we thought that they would last forever but man God's people kept on standing in the end. The Roman Empire had something going on and and it thought that it would last forever. And, and, it, and it actually even crucified the Son of God. But when he got up on the third day with all power in heaven and earth in his hand, he showed what King used to say, that truth crushed to the earth will rise again. He showed what, 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 what people used to say, hey, that, that somehow God will make a way out of no way. And we know that we will have victory because Jesus got up from the grave. We know that love will win because Jesus got up from the grave. We know that righteousness will turn out in the end because Jesus got up from the grave. It ain't that good news, y'all. I mean, that's good news indeed. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the hope that, that comes to us because Jesus got up from the grave. When we talk about and think about a beloved community, it is rooted and grounded in the resurrected Christ who not only suffered for us but was also raised for us to give us hope, to know that as we come together in love, that this labor of love is not in vain, that at the end of the day, long after empires and markets and nations and, 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 and political parties and factions have passed away, the love that we see right here at these tables will remain. We thank you, Lord, for the things that last. We thank you, Lord, for the things that will be significant for an eternity. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Y'all have a great rest of the day.